Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. If you ask the average person in Illinois what the state's attorney general is doing these days, they might not answer very quickly because Kwame Raoul doesn't call very many news conferences, but his office has been very active on some of the state and the nation's most pressing issues, and we're going to bring you up to date this weekend. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this week is Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. He's been leading the AG's office since January when he took over from Lisa Madigan. Before that, he was in the state Senate where he held a legislative seat vacated by Barack Obama when he went to the U.S. Senate. As a lawmaker, Kwame Raoul has distinguished himself as an advocate for voting rights, court reform, pensions, and ethics reform, among other things. Kwame Raoul, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Craig. So good to finally be able to talk to you as Attorney General. We've talked about you being Attorney General for so long. Uh, But we can't have any discussion about the top issues facing Illinois without uh, talking about gun violence, which is also a major issue across the United States. Those deadly mass shootings in El Paso and uh, Dayton, Ohio, and frankly, even the one most recently... uh, the shootings of the police officers in Philadelphia put some new energy into efforts for new gun laws. Um, this week, you and about a dozen more attorneys general from across the U.S. filed a front of the court brief about gun safety regulations. Now, this involves a New York City case. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that and especially why people in Illinois should care? Well, uh, the New York City case involves uh, the... Um limitations that New York City has put on uh, transporting uh, firearms. And and it's important, while this is a, a case germane to New York City, it's important to defend uh, a municipality's uh, capability to restrict uh, the uh, trafficking of, of, of firearms within its uh, jurisdiction. Now, uh, we've got our own problem uh, within the city of Chicago, we, we don't have any uh, gun manufacturers or gun dealers uh, within the city of Chicago, yet firearms are uh, trafficked and transported uh, from beyond the boundaries of the city of Chicago and beyond the boundaries of the state of Illinois, for that matter. And uh, uh, joining in with uh, my colleagues from across the country to, to file an amicus brief uh, defending uh, New York City's capacity to regulate uh, trafficking is it is in fact connected to what we need to be able to defend doing within the state of Illinois or, or throughout the country. Now the issue is whether cities and states can uh, file their own laws, and right now this is about a lawsuit brought by the gun uh, gun manufacturers, I believe. Uh, but hasn't the Supreme Court already upheld the right? of states to pass their own gun regulations? Well, most certainly. Uh, the the, uh, 
be it the NRA or other advocates for uh, uh, gun access to guns, will continuously find different angles and avenues to to uh, uh, sue and to to challenge uh, those of us who are trying to regulate and keep the the public safe. Um, there's no inconsistency with allowing people to embrace uh, sportsman activities with guns or even possess guns for uh, self-defense. There's no inconsistency between that and making sure that we uh, put in place laws to make sure that guns don't get into the hands of people who will do harm with them. And that's the intent of legislatures throughout this country and certainly municipalities as well, as well as uh, attorneys general. Can I ask what kind of new or different or modified laws do you want to see here in Illinois, uh, given all the concerns among people here? Well, I think, you know, we took a major step with uh, gun dealer licensing. Um, And... Um, it's important to make sure that we hold uh, dealers. Uh, not all dealers are bad actors, um, but there are, there are some where um, a, a large percentage of guns involved in crimes are coming out of specific dealers, and so we have to have the capacity uh, to regulate them. However, uh, everything we do is not just through uh, legislating. Uh, my office is... Uh, taking on uh, trying to uh, create, uh, build out our capacity uh, to track guns that have been uh, utilized in the commission of a crime. Um, it mirrors something that has been previously done by the New York Attorney General's Office and, and uh, quite frankly, by the Chicago Police Department on a local level. But again, uh, the guns uh, come from outside of the city of Chicago, and so we want to build out a platform statewide that allows us to uh, share data with the various law enforcement departments from different municipalities uh, so we are better able to uh, track guns um, from origin to the point that uh, they're utilized in the commission of a crime. If we're able to collect that data, uh, it, it better uh, equips us uh, to go after those who are intentionally trafficking guns into the people who will who will do harm with them and hold them accountable. Um, do you also want to see things like some of the other things that people are talking about, either bans on high-capacity magazines, bans on assault weapons? And I know that that raises a whole lot of issues, too. Yeah, and we continue to, to, to strive for reasonableness, you know, um, while in the legislature, we, we tried to limit the number of guns individuals could, could, could buy per month. Uh, it was once a bill that uh, tried to limit it to 10 a month uh, that, that didn't advance. Um, you know, we tried to limit the, the, uh, the, the, the number of bullets that could be in a, in, in, in a clip. Um, that did not advance. And so you, you, you run up against walls in, in, in the legislature. But again, I think uh, we we need to make efforts outside of, in addition to legislating. You know, uh, too often we turn solely to, oh, we need new gun laws. Well, we also need investment in communities. We also need to make sure that uh, we have trauma-informed care 
for those who are survivors of gun violence. Because one of the things that I'm I'm fully aware of, and that's why I, when I while a legislator, I sponsored legislation to to pilot trauma recovery centers, uh, hospital-based trauma recovery centers, to make sure that those who were exposed or are made victim by way of gun violence uh, have services. Because one of the things that we know is that there's cycles of crime. And those who uh, are initially survivors or witnesses of, uh, of gun violence and suffer the trauma of gun violence uh, can evolve into being perpetrators of the same violence that they were once a victim of. And that's why in our office, where we've historically uh, dealt with uh, delivering services to crime victims, we had a heavy emphasis uh, prior to my tenure on on sexual assault and domestic violence, and we continue that, and we continue that at the same level and and at an increased level. Um, however, we we cannot ignore those who were exposed and who have suffered the trauma of of gun violence, and and so we're uh, expanding our service with the with a focus on on trying to make sure we get services to to survivors of gun violence. Um, I want to turn to another dimension of what the the kind of thing that we're talking about, and that is working with other attorneys general uh, around the country. Um, And I know there are a number of things that you're doing. I want to touch on a couple of them and might as well touch on the one that, uh, that you're highlighting uh, right now, even mm-hmm. as we are uh, recording this, and that is uh, filing a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Homeland Security over what's called the public charge rule, uh, and basically is something other than the bring us your tired and you're poor and you're uh, wretched yearning to be free, which is on the Statue of Liberty. What is that lawsuit to do? Well, as you may remember, uh, Craig, when I was a uh, candidate uh, for attorney general, uh, I responded to a uh, discriminatory comment that our our president made um, about Haiti, immigrants from Haiti and other countries referring to them as coming from uh, S-hole countries. And and around the same time, he expressed a preference for, for immigrants uh, that come from countries such as Norway. And it was um, a demonstration of his discrimination in, in terms of um, his posture towards uh, immigration into this country. Uh, this country has always been known as a, a, a nation of, of, of immigrants. Um, the public charge rule uh, that's being suggested by uh, DHS uh, suggests to expand uh the the categories of uh, public assistance uh, that uh, are considered when considering somebody's applications for uh, citizenship, and so what it in effect does is is it renders uh, individuals, um, sometimes individuals who are uh, permanent residents, some individuals who may have. Uh, children who are citizens uh, unable to uh, access these services or otherwise risk uh, deportation. Yeah, so basically, and I think some of the representatives of the uh, Trump administration have been quoted as saying, uh, well, you know, we want, we, we, of course, we want the tired and the poor, but we want 
tired and the poor who can stand on their own two feet. In other words, that they're not really that poor. Uh, and do you think, though, that the majority of the people of the United States are ready to support that kind of attitude that says, no, we need to help everybody, or are people becoming more and more like the kind that say, yeah, but not with my money, not with my tax dollars. I don't want to take care of people who aren't even citizens. Well, the irony is is, is, is it's the tax dollars of certain of, of these individuals as well. We're talking about people who are working here and, and paying taxes as, as well, and, and they may have children that um, may be beneficiaries, who, children who are citizens that may be uh, beneficiaries of uh, uh, the CHIP program, for example. Um, so we're not talking about people who are, are just coming into the country and just being de- total dependents. We're talking about people who are contributing uh, to lifting up this, this country, and, and that's the origin of, of this country. Um, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump's, uh, you know, ancestry doesn't originate from within the United States. And so he himself is a descendant of, 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 of immigrants. And so, so we have to appreciate that uh, the contributions that are made to, to this country's functioning uh, comes from Im- Im- the immigrant population as well. We know these people as our neighbors, as people who work with us um, and who have children who are, who are citizens. And so um, it's unconscionable that uh, there's this move towards uh, a, a discriminatory approach to how we, uh, how we approach our immigration policy. I want to ask you, though, all these actions that the attorneys general are taking, especially where you're going into court, where it's not just you're appealing to Congress, are in an atmosphere where the president, through his appointments, has been transforming the federal courts of the United States so that they are more conservative. Uh, and are those actions that you're filing going to be falling on increasingly deaf ears? Well, I, I you know, I, I would like to believe not, you know, um, notwithstanding that I may, uh, have my every time there's an appointment to the Supreme Court, I may have my opinion one way or another of, of a candidate that I may prefer more than another. Uh, by and large, all the people who tend to be appointed to the the highest court are people uh, who are, you know, learned scholars, and you know they may may have certain leanings, and they certainly do. I mean, you've got different. Um, you've got conservative justice and you have justices who are um, more progressive in their approach to the law. But some of the president's actions are so contrary to the Constitution and even conservative justices like to strictly uh, apply the Constitution. And so um, as a result of that, um, you know, I, I remain hopeful that even the, the justices that uh, may may be closer to embracing some of the president's policies, if they're at home having coffee, 
will apply the law as the law should be applied to the specific actions being taken by the president or his administration. The Supreme Court's one thing. Um, Are you seeing any effects at the lower level, at the federal district courts? Well, certainly they're they're, 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 uh, different circuits, uh, uh, court of appeals circuits, as well as different districts, um, might have... um, a different leaning depending on what part of the country you're in. But it's always, it's not just a, a manifestation of, of Donald Trump. It's always been like that depending on um, uh, what the, the politics in that uh, region of the nation uh, may be and how uh, suggestions that uh, come from U.S. senators from within states as to candidates for district court or or courts of appeals um, may 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 be suggested up to to the president, whoever that president is at the at the time. So that that's nothing new. Uh, it's it's uh, it's been like that for some time. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. Um, before we leave the whole issue of uh, the attorneys general, are there any other joint actions that you uh, feel ought to be highlighted? Yeah, well, I literally meet uh, twice a week with uh, my own staff, and we call it, uh, in fact, we're going to have our meeting uh, uh, shortly after I leave you here today. Um, um, I, I literally meet uh, a couple of times a, a week, uh, for a multi-state meeting to go over uh, federal actions uh, that have been taken that are contrary to to what we believe are, are good policies or contrary to the Constitution, contrary to established law. And so whether it's uh, attacks on uh, reproductive rights, uh, we are leading, uh, we're co-leading with uh, New York an action to try to... Uh, um, uh, fight uh, discriminatory policies uh, in employment against uh, people based on their sexual orientation and their uh, gender identity. We're leading again. We led in a comment letter with which, with regards to a uh, housing policy that uh, could be discriminatory uh, against individuals based on their gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, uh, various immigration. Uh, actions, uh, rollbacks on environmental protection, rollbacks on policies that protect college students from being preyed on by predatory uh, lenders. Uh, he's a gift that keeps <laughs> on giving, and, and it keeps us active. I I, uh, I participate on a conference call on a weekly basis with my colleagues uh, from throughout the country, my, the attorneys general th- from throughout the country, and I'd say on about six or I've been in the office seven months, I think at least six or seven occasions I've met uh, physically uh, out of state with attorneys general, some, sometimes on a partisan basis and sometimes on, on, on a bipartisan basis. Because we also collaborate on a bipartisan basis. Um, the the uh, opioid investigation and litigation that we're involved with on a multi-state level is something that we're engaged in on a bipartisan basis. Uh, um, 
fighting against robocalls, uh, something that we engage in on a bipartisan basis, uh, encouraging um, regulations for uh, CBD uh, products. Uh, there are multiple things that we work on on a bipartisan basis. So I don't want to create a, uh, a perception that it's uh, Democrats against Republicans all, um, all of the times. I, I count uh, amongst my new friends uh, some Republican attorney generals as uh, attorneys general as well. Uh, well, I want to move to a few things that are specifically uh, geared toward Illinois. Um, one is we are uh, slowly moving toward the legalization of uh, recreational marijuana here in Illinois. Um, obviously, there are some business and, and just logistical concerns, but what law enforcement concerns are you going to be watching uh, as you see all of this worked out before the um, pot law takes full effect, uh, which is really next year? Well, I mean... I think there are concerns that are already exist. Um, you'd have to have your head in the sand to uh, <laughs> not believe there wasn't already widespread use of uh, cannabis within the state of Illinois and throughout our country, for that matter. And so, uh, one of the things that you have to uh, deal with is how um, you deal with driving under the influence of of cannabis. Um, the the science on cannabis um, hasn't uh, progressed yet to to where we are with alcohol, for example. So with alcohol, we have a a, a, a 0.08 uh, threshold standard, and it's a little bit uh, more complicated with with uh, marijuana because it stays in uh, your your system longer, and it, and it could be in your system. Uh, a day or two later, uh, when when you're you no longer impaired uh, by having um, uh, used it, and so there 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 are complications that come with that. But you know, uh, just as with alcohol, there are field sobriety tests, and there are other indi- indicators of whether one is impaired in their driving capacity. There are employment issues that. Um, um, Will will arise where people have historically uh, disciplined employees for having uh, uh, marijuana in their system, and so um, we have to evolve with the le- le- legalization. Do you believe that police departments across the state are going to be ready uh, in January for dealing with the issue of driving? While into the influence. Well, well, as I said, they've they've had to deal with it already. It's nothing. It's it, it's not as if people haven't been arrested and charged with driving under the influence of marijuana already, because yeah. people have smoked pot and gotten behind a wheel, and and so uh, to the extent that it's impaired their driving, then they've put, been pulled over, and their eyes are a bloodshot red, and there's a smell of marijuana in the car. An officer may suspect that somebody's uh, under the influence that has uh, that has existed for 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 some time the the difference now is that we're we're legalizing the the substance alcohol is legalized now yet you know we still are capable of uh um, arresting people who are uh driving under the influence of of alcohol good point um 
I do want to talk about uh, the Chicago Police Department because mm-hmm. uh, your office, admittedly, under the begun under uh, Lisa Madigan, but did participate and frankly pushed the city of Chicago into a, a consent decree that uh, now will govern how police reform uh, is done in the city. Um, how is the your office and, frankly, the federal court monitoring the progress that the city is trying to make? Yes, so we're, we're still in the um, early stages of the implementation of the consent decree, which was just just uh, entered in, in March of uh, this year. Um, so in March of uh, the, the judge approved the consent decree in, in January and it became effective, effective at the end of March, at which point he ap- appointed uh, Maggie Hickey to be the, 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 the monitor for the um, con- consent decree. And, and uh, he appointed uh, retired judge uh, David to be the special master to to help the court um, also observe the progress. Um, so um, we've since also elected a new mayor of the city of Chicago who's not foreign to the uh, topic of law enforcement reform. Um, she served on the police board and she also chaired uh, a, a task force uh, on which I, I I served on one of the committees, and so she, she did an admirable job uh, serving on the task force. I think, um, and this is not meant to be a knock on her her predecessor. I think uh, she's a little bit more familiar uh, with the intricacies of of dealing uh, with with reform and the different topics that are connected to the consent decree and and, and uh, law enforcement generally. She's a former federal prosecutor. Um, I have uh, I had a, an initial meeting with her uh, maybe a couple of months ago, and I feel confident that uh, we will be able to work together on the implementation of, of, of the consent decree. Um, I do want to talk about one other department, uh, and that's a state one. Uh, Department of Children and Family Services, um, because I uh, I know that there are still cases where D- DCFS is may not have performed as well as it should, and I know you had to kind of issue a warning to DCFS because it wasn't giving a news organization a news organization some information that it was seeking about uh, which offices were uh, complying with uh, with the law and and may not have been. How's how's that going, and how are you able to keep an eye on that? Well, well, one of the things that you're highlighting there is a function within our office of 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 making sure that we have transparency in government, not only in state government but at the local level. We have a public access counselor, and we we um, make rulings on on um, whether um, people should have uh, through the Freedom of Information Act and through the Op- Open Meetings Act. Well, whether people should, regular citizens and journalists should have access to information, and oftentimes it's it's our prodding that uh, gets uh, either state agencies or local governments to finally release information. Uh, transparency is important. Uh, obviously, there there are exemptions to uh, FOIA, 
and their their circumstances, and and, and in DCFS it, that there are privacy concerns that that must must be observed. Um, so it's not always uh, black 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 and white. So so they're they're um, we have to come in and make judgments as to um, whether information should be released. With regards to the functioning of DCFS itself, as a former uh, uh, child welfare prosecutor, um, you know, the we've got to protect our kids, and we've got to make sure that um, the agencies that are charged of taking care of kids who have uh, either been abused in their own household or in some other place are, are taken care of once they come, come into custody of, of, of the state. Well, thank you. That is going to be the final word. We are out of time. Thank you, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul, for spending this uh, half hour with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. You'll also find our podcast on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 